Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We'll soon be announcing our 2023 festival program, so make sure you receive the announcement by signing up to our e-newsletters at swf.org.au forward slash subscribe. Until then, we hope you enjoy this podcast. Good morning, everybody. Hello. What an absolute delight to be back in the room together. I know the Writers' Festival has been on all week, but I still haven't gotten over the actual, like, thrill of being seeing real bodies in rooms. My name is Michaela Kolofsky, and it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning, moderating this session on collaboration. And two, you can't find two better people to speak with you about that, and I'm going to introduce you to them in a moment. But I wanted to firstly um, acknowledge that we are on the Gadigal, we're on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and I wanted to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Let me tell you about Yumi Steins and Claudine Ryan. Yumi Steins is a writer, broadcaster, podcaster, television presenter, food fanatic, fitness enthusiast and mother of four, including two teenage girls, so she knows what she's talking about. Um, she, has, she hosts a national radio show on the KISS Network, which is called The 3PM Pickup, and she's written a series of guidebooks, including Welcome to Your Period, Welcome to Your Boobs, um, I just love being able to say that. Uh, and Welcome to Consent, which was recently named one of the New York Public Library's top 50 books of 2021. In spite of her history of TV presenting, she's actually now best known for the podcast and the book, but the podcast in particular, Ladies, We Need to Talk, which is why we're here today. It's been a cult podcast since it first came out in 2017. It spawned its own book and, new, and numerous book clubs where women get together and unpack what they've heard after each new episode and she is the host and co-creator of that podcast. Please make her welcome. Right next to me is Claudine Ryan. She's a writer, journalist, editor, and podcast creator with the ABC. She spent many years talking to experts and other women about women's health, and she's the co-creator of the podcast, Ladies We Need to Talk, and co-author of the book of the same name. She says she pitched Ladies We Need to Talk because she knew she wasn't the only person who needed to know more about painful sex, the mental load, and the history of the clitoris. Um, please make her welcome. Um, for those of you who, um, who looked at the blurb before it was altered, we also had the wonderful Dr. Melissa Kang with us, who is, was the, interestingly, was the first guest on the podcast in the first season and the last guest on the last episode of the first season of the podcast. She's written separate books with Yumi, which we'll talk about, and she's also been very integral to Ladies We Need to Talk, but COVID changed her plans and we couldn't beam her in. So she's with us in spirit, but we'll refer to her a lot, and she's fantastic. Um, I want to start by talking about what collaboration is and what we mean when we talk about collaboration. Yumi, can I start with you at the big picture? When, when you hear that word, how does the work you do kind of integrate or rely on collaboration? Mm. So when, you, when you're a creative person, it doesn't matter what field you're in, you've kind of got a little box or an island of expertise that you're good at and you can make a meaningful contribution in. Um, but I got my start in, I guess, public-facing work as a TV presenter in the year 2000, and you can't exist on TV without camera operators and, you know, script writers and directors, and then you need a whole conglomerate of people agreeing to broadcast those pictures into households. So there's always a, an element of collaboration. And when I picture what the word means, I, I imagine my box bumping up against many other boxes and how those um, vibrations sometimes flow harmoniously and how they're, sometimes they're quite scratchy. Claudine, you come at this kind of work from a slightly different perspective because you're not a host in that way. Yeah. But you're a maker. How do you define collaboration? What, what does collaboration look and feel like? What makes it different to other kinds of work? So for me, collaboration is at the heart of everything that I do in all aspects of my life. And I imagine it as being like, Yumi's is a box. Mine is like a crocheted blanket or something where every stitch matters and every contribution is part of it. And if you try and pull out one, the whole thing kind of falls apart, but you could stitch it back together. And um, it's something that is just so vital to creating really important, meaningful work, I think. I like Claudine's idea of it being like a, a blanket, because I think of that idea that it's porous, that things can seep in and out. 
in collaboration. Yeah, absolutely. You don't always have control in collaboration. In fact, you'd never have control when it comes to collaboration. And I think that's a really key part of it is understanding that you have to be willing to, like, let it go. When we talk about the idea of collaboration, it can seem a bit sort of kumbaya-ish, but it needs to be talked about at least to begin with, in contrast to this idea of the cult of the genius. Because there's this idea we've had for so probably from the late 18th century that, that for great art to be made, great literature, great music, great anything, that it's one person in isolation, all by themselves, locked away in their garret or their castle, making magic. And that, that's a very gendered assumption as well. Um, but I wondered if you could reflect a bit on that, about how hard that idea has made it for people to accept or recognise collaboration as a, as a really powerful source of creativity. Yeah, it's interesting because back in my um, early days of, of reporting, I was frequently interviewing bands, rock bands, and by nature they are a collaboration of people who have to get together and bang instruments and make a, a racket that's, that's sufficiently palatable enough to hopefully make money from and tour and sell records and stuff. So collaboration always seemed like a real thing um, and a real pursuit, but I do think that there's a sort of a, a perception of a softness around people who can collaborate because it's what women do, um, whereas that sole genius is often pictured as a, as a sole man who, who does his auteur creative genius um, in isolation and we're all a little reverential to his creation and less so to a collaborative um, creation. Claudine, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Well, I think that one of the key things is that when you are making something, you are making it for an audience, right? And so when you're working in isolation, unless you really know your craft and you are that genius, of which there are not that many really, chances are if you're just sitting away doing it on your own, you're not going to be connecting with as many people as you can because you're not thinking about the work in different ways. And that was one of the reasons why I was drawn to Yumi and then Yumi and I were drawn to other people to work with on the podcast because we knew that we wanted, we had a job that we wanted to do in terms of reaching a broad audience of women. But there's no single experience and there's no single way of telling those stories and connecting with that audience. So you want to have those kind of ideas and perspectives in from the ground up so that you're creating something that has um, more potency for, you know, for that group of people that you want to make your um, work for. Mm. Your podcast is like an ultimate study in collaboration, and I wondered if you could just take us all back right to the very beginning, where the idea came from and then how you and Yumi started to work together. Yes. So the idea came from, a, if I'm to point to a specific moment, it was a story about ageing vulvas that was published on the ABC News website. And it was by far and away the most popular story that week. Um, and despite the fact that there was all kind of politics and all sorts of things happening, and it sort of just really confirmed something I knew, which was there was an audience of people who maybe weren't talking about ageing vulvas or similar topics, but they were definitely interested in it. And over time, I, you know, just gathered more data, you know, for myself to, to kind of know that there was, you know, that that audience was there. And every time I, we published a story, um, it was a success. And then I also tested this idea in my own life, you know, like by, by going further with conversations than I might have before, being more vulnerable around conversations like about libido or you know, lack, or lack thereof or, you know, periods or whatever. And then uh, there was a call out um, in the ABC for podcast ideas. And so I thought, oh, this could really work as a podcast because a podcast is so intimate. And I um, had a, a mutual friend, colleague, knew Yumi and I, and so they put, um, gave me her contact details because I thought she could be really interesting. And I sent her a text and she got back to me 15 minutes later. So I kind of knew that she was into it. So that was pretty great. And then we met and just built on that idea together. So I went to Yumi with this idea of, you know, I want to make a podcast for women by women talking about the things that we're not talking about. And we just, that's where it started. And we just kind of grew it and other women came in and, you know, contributed ideas. And it's just, you know, and it's continued to evolve and it's still evolving now. Like the latest season of the podcast has evolved into something quite different. And the book itself was a, another evolution. Or you could say, rather than evolving, you could say it's ageing like our vulvas. Yes. <laughs> we, we had to do a promo saying, okay, let's get you talking on Radio National with one of those old 
um, guys, white guys that work on ABC on the radio, I forget their names, they're all the same. They're all called John Glover or something. But, um, but he was like, tell us about your podcast. And I was like, well, did you know that if... Well, we asked some, some old relatives, what, what do you mean by ageing vulva? And the auntie said, you know when you leave a packet of ham uncovered in the fridge and it goes grey? <laughs> so I said that on the ABC Radio <laughs> National interview about, yeah, you've got to listen to this podcast because we're talking ham, OK? <laughs> Love it. They were like, well, there's one we're definitely going to keep on commissioning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 100%. Um, so you're talking about how it began, but I wanted to ask you both as well before we talk about some of the logistics of how you made it, because I think we've got fans in the audience. Is there vulnerability in having to collaborate with other people? What's that like when you've got a, what you think is a fantastic idea and you know that you're going to put it out there and two fiercely intelligent, capable people who are good at what they do are maybe going to like, have a go at your idea? What's that like? in the process? I think it's about practice a lot, Michaela. Like, um, when you're working in that space, you do have to be really open and you have to sort of sit with, well, does that story sound like something I could tell? Then you have to reflect it back. Is that the, something the audience cares for enough? And you have to guess. Like, you don't necessarily know every time. Um, and then in the room, you have to feel confident to kick an idea around because everybody's got a corner that they can see from that you can't. Um, and I think if you've had some experience in being in those rooms, you know how to communicate in a, in a just and kind way. And if someone does have a bad idea, you can sit with it and kind of look at it and shine lights on it from different angles and all agree, you know, that idea is balls. <laughs> uh, and we kind of all, well, you, you get there together as a group. And I think part of that is making sure that like creating, and I think that was something Yumi and I did with, um, you know, in the first season and then it continued on, creating a safe space around the work. So knowing that, you know, there is no, like, okay, there's bulls ideas, but do you know what I mean? You're not bulls, right? If your idea's bulls, you're... Yeah, so the difference between an exactly. idea and the person... Yeah. yeah, and having respect for the person and, um, and being really confident that you're safe and that you can kind of put ideas out there and it, even if the ideas don't get up, that you know, the relationship and the work that you do together still has value. Mm. I know we're kind of at a moment where we're like peak podcast. We're beyond peak podcast. You know, we're all making podcasts about not making podcasts now. But for people who are interested, how, talk to me, Yumi, about how you actually go about, let's take, take one, take one that was a topic where you were like, how are we going to do this? Break it down for us. How do you find the guests? How do you weave it together? How do you know you've kind of got the balance right? There's a great book called um, Out on the Wire, um, that, that is like a graphic novel that explains how to make a podcast. And one of the illustrations that we had in our minds the entire time was um, a producer going, okay, so what we are looking for for this particular episode is a nun on a tractor. <laughs> so you can visualise the nun on the tractor. Now we're going to hunt for her. So it's this idea that this person exists. It's just about problem solving to get to her. So we'd often go, okay, what's who's the nun on the tractor here in this situation? And that was a really good way of kind of going, it's just needles in haystacks and problem solving. But Claudine knows more about that back-end stuff than I Yeah, do. yeah. And I think it's the nun on the tractor. It's also like starting with an idea and follow, you know what I mean, and following it through. So you don't sort of go, okay, it's going to be exactly this because you don't know until you started talking to people exactly where you're going to end up. And... Um, and I think this was more what I did than Yumi. You know, you talk to a lot of people, you talk to a lot of experts, you talk to a lot of, um, you know, people who had had lived experience until you kind of landed on, okay, this is, this is really where we're going and these are the best people to help us bring it together. And that's one of the key differences I found between the podcast and the book and what delighted me a little bit about the book is because with the podcast, you know, every... It's all got to count, you know what I mean? Like your interview has to be really sharp and you, you know, everyone has to sound really good because, you, you know, when you're making, cutting your tape to get a really great sounding episode, those elements have got to be right. But when you're doing the book, the, you know, you can talk to someone who rambles on and, and you know what I mean? Like it's, it's a lot more, it's a gentler, I think, process in terms of how that works. I mean, I don't know how you find that process of going from working in audio to book form, but I find it... I found that much easier. Yeah. There's, there are rules around podcasting that I think amateurs could benefit from learning, which I'm very happy to share this morning if you want to hear it. But when you, for instance, when you have a conversation, you have a bit of to and fro. And I often hear this at the start of a podcast episode where inexperienced presenters will go, how are you going? 
yeah, not bad. I, you know, I'm really good. How are you? Shut the fuck up. Just, we don't care. Just go straight to it. And we don't need, things don't need to be repeated. So the way that you might emphasise a point in a conversation, you need to strip that away because it doesn't need to exist in a podcast. You need economy of words. And that's a real discipline that I'm absolutely devoted to in, in my work as a broadcaster. I'd like you to run some masterclasses, if you could, on, on podcasts. I think that would be good. <laughs> I do hear a lot of, how are you? No, how are you? No, I'm good. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, 15 minutes. Yeah. Skip, skip, yeah, skip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, tedious. And I think what's so fascinating about the way your podcast works is that you never feel like you're eavesdropping. I never feel like I'm not part of the conversation that Yumi's having with a guest. I feel like I'm in the room with them, even if I don't want to participate. And that's a really powerful and intimate experience as well. Mm. There's a lot of intimacy with the the way, you know, we talk about that room where the producers are sitting and we're brainstorming how to um, il illustrate an idea with, with guests, you know, and often we do have to talk about what, what we've experienced, you know. This happened to me or my, this happened to my mum, my friend went through this. There's a lot of rawness, um, exposure, um, confession. Um, and so in, in that, I think there has to be a lot of trust. I was going to ask about that. There are a lot of people, and we'll talk about all the other people who are collaborators with you, you know, the people who are sound engineers, but also the, the guests you find, people with lived experience. How do you balance telling their stories and wanting to tell, to tell their stories in a shared way with keeping them safe? Well, I think that is, a, like, that's in the, when you approach that person, you sort of build that rapport and that trust with them and you get a feel for what their story is and how vulnerable they are. I know certainly both in the book and the podcast, there were people who we chose to leave out because um, it just didn't feel like it was going to be safe for them. They were just really too vulnerable or, or unwell. Um, and also there's a little bit of explaining to people, less so experts and people who have a public profile, but, but you know, women who are just sharing their stories. I particularly remember a woman who we spoke to for a podcast about not wanting, you know, being a mother and not wanting to be a mother. So that's a pretty taboo, deeply taboo sort of topic. And she was really happy to use her name, her kids' names, her partner's names. And I was just sort of said to her, look, I, th I think we really need to think about what this looks like in five years' time and 10 years' time when your, you know, three-year-old is 13 or, you, you know, your partner, you think he might be okay about this, but what does that look like when someone at work hears this? So I think it's really, um, you know, it's a duty of care to your, to your guests as well. And in a way, I've, I certainly felt that duty of care more to women who are telling their personal stories about their lived experiences than I did to experts or, you know, people who had a public profile because I felt they knew more about what was going on. So I think it's kind of unpacking that stuff for people because... If you, don't, if you don't work in the media, you've got no clue about what it actually means to put your story out there. Yeah, but that said, what, what we'd often do is give um, our guests the option to use a, a fake name um, and then maybe obscure a few details, like don't say the name of your child or, you know, name the city where you live. So, so only a few people would recognise them by their voices and even then perhaps there'd be a question about it. But what we found time and time again was I think with the exception of women who've cheated on their partners, everybody, even those who were like, no, I think I want to use a fake name, by the time they got into the studio and had sort of built themselves up, because I think it's quite a, a psychological um, confrontation to, to take your story and all that baggage and pain and go front up to an ABC studio in whichever city, sit in the booth, put your headphones on, and then find a, a really powerful way to communicate it as truthfully as you can. And by the time the guests get to that point, they are in full ownership of their story. So even if they've said, I want a fake name, they get there and they go, actually, can you use my real name? And it's, it's really quite beautiful to watch because that, it can be something just horrendous, like talking about um, having such a birth injury that they can't go to the toilet without a colostomy bag, something that, that is painful for them on a daily basis, but they can actually say, this is, I'm not the only person experiencing this and I'm really willing to put myself on the line here and own this painful story. And it's actually, that, that is the essence of Ladies We Need To Talk, is once you've said it and you've attributed that experience to yourself and your own power, 
you're actually kind of giving the power to others who are sharing the experience and destigmatizing something that's just, it's hitherto been really awful for you. Mm. That said, and it may be, I wonder if it's possible to go in this direction. Are there, were there topics that you both thought about where you thought, we just can't make it work? It's too sensitive or... Were there ones where you sort of had to let them go? Yeah, there were elements of stories that we had to let go. We had to talk about fetishes and um, there was one about enjoying erotica where um, a woman, you know, and it was a celebrate, it was meant to be a celebratory story about how using erotica can really switch your sex life on, right? So we're like, great, we're we're here for that. But she, she wanted to talk about being choked and I was like, in no, in no way can I justify normalising that in a way that could have one DV victim um, be told that this is a normal thing and you wanted it. So it, the potential for that to be misconstrued or, or abused by an abuser was sufficient, just that potential was sufficient for me to say, look, can we talk about the spanking and the other stuff, but leave that, that bit out because that is a fucking big thing f- for us to carry as a podcast and I don't, I don't actually think that we're strong enough. The nuance and the risk was too big. Um, I'm thinking about the way that you work together and I'm, it's a shame Melissa isn't with us because I know she's been an integral part of that. But does collaboration, can collaboration work if there's somebody... Who's, who has authority? Does collaboration work if there's somebody who's kind of leading the collaboration? I think they're two different things, right? Like there's authority and then there's leading. And leading doesn't always mean telling people what to do. You know, right? it's leading sort of from side by side. And I think, you know, when Yumi and I worked together on the um, first season, and again, even when we were writing the book, I guess, certainly initially, like I, I was sort of leading that process. But it was very, um, it, it was still very two-way, do you know what I mean? Like there needed to be steps taken and things put in place for that to happen, um, for, the, for the work to happen. But that didn't mean that it had to be done my way or the highway, you know? So I think that's, again, to that point I made earlier about the, the kind of, I actually think rather than investing in kind of tools for collaboration, if you're serious about collaboration, you've got to invest in the relationship between you and your collaborators, and also in getting that shared understanding of where you're going, what your North Star is, and if you need to shift that on the horizon, and it will shift, and being open to that. So I think that's how you lead a collaboration, right? Like having ideas, being willing to put yourself out there, be vulnerable with your idea, knowing that it's going to change, and then responding to that. Mm. Yumi, I know in your life you've been, you know, you, you work on radio, you've presented television for years. Is a successful collaboration, does a successful collaboration always have a successful outcome? What's the relationship between a great process and the result? That's a really good question. I think a lot of things can result in, in noble failures, and, and failure is a metric, I guess, that, that we all use, success and failure, but it's not necessarily um, a, a measure of what's going on in your soul or what went on in your spirit and whether you've come out enhanced or tarnished from the experience. And often you can have really beautiful successes um, that were, from the outside, an absolute stinking failure. Um, and that's it. I think that's okay. And then on the flip side, right, you can have something that might be by external measures a success and it's wrecked you and destroyed your... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's, there's no guarantee that, you know, something can be, you know, you can end up with a product that might be okay or a, a piece of work that's okay or good. Not, not okay. Good. It succeeds. But the actual process to getting there was pretty was awful brutal. and toxic. Yeah. And you know what else I've been reflecting on, Michaela, is let's say, ladies, we need to talk, the podcast was axed or not renewed next year so we got to seven seasons and then that was it does that mean we failed you know because we got axed is is the axing the failure or is the previous seven seasons that were hugely downloaded listened to and and talked about is that a measure so I think that idea that success is like a continuum that doesn't end with creative projects like a tv show that's never come to an end I think that's a bit of a joke and we need to want to be yeah no, I don't want to be named. Anyway, they're acts. So, yeah, you want, you want to allow yourself um, an end point too that's not necessarily the mark of a failure. Yeah. I know she's not here, but I'd love to hear you both talk a bit about Melissa Kang. And so she, she became, she's a, for people who don't know, she's a 
really fantastic public health, um, sexual health expert. She focuses on young women's health. Um, she's been doing that for a long time. She was the Dolly doctor, for those of you who read Dolly. When I learned that about her, I was like, I'm in royalty company now. Um, but what, so she was the first expert you booked. Why did, why did she become such, how did she become such an integral part of working with you on Ladies We Need to Talk? Because she's not a, she's not a broadcaster in that way. She's an academic she's and an a researcher. Academic. So how she's did an she fit in? So, so Dolly Doctor was the nun on the tractor that Claudine found. She was, because episode one, we were like, let's unpack why everybody calls their vulva a vagina. It's like calling uh, your throat your face. They're two different things. <laughs> face, throat, vagina, vulva. <laughs> um, and that is absolutely true. And if you can train your mouth to get the word right, they, I mean, your future is, is you've, you've veered off into a direction facing the truth. So Claudine's job was... Let's find the nun on the tractor who is somebody that can talk to this, but who is deeply trusted, revered, almost a rock star of women's health. Who could that person be? And when she found Dolly Doctor, everybody was like, did you meet Dolly Doctor? <laughs> I think because of the podcast and the books we've written subsequently, she's a bit more um, public-facing and easier to find, perhaps. But back then, it was like, did you really get... Yeah, yeah. It was, and that it was, was you. Yeah, it was difficult. I grew up in... Um, Bundaberg in the 1980s and so I learnt and went to a Catholic school so I learnt a lot from the Dolly Doctor and Melissa wasn't the Dolly Doctor at that point but when we were making that first season and that very first episode I sort of had this idea that you know we we're working in audio so what were, what were we going to do to help women understand all the bits you know and we didn't want to do a shopping list so we had Melissa sort of take us on a walking tour from the vulva through to your ovaries the vagina and the uterus. Anyway, so we we knew that we had to find her. And then we, yeah, dug around, you know, like that's what a producer and a journalist does, right? You find your talent. So we found her. And she was, she was just around the corner. She was like over the road at UTS and knock, knock, knock. And I remember the tape of you when you first met her, like that tape of you like opening the door, her opening the door and you're like, oh my God, you're Asian. <laughs> I was really I like... I was actually polishing the Dolly Doctor's Asian. Dolly Doctor's Asian. How did I not know that? I just thought she was like, I don't know, just an invisible doctor. Like, like God. But yeah, that was a, a really great moment to meet her. Um, and just somebody who's... You know when you, when you just know that they're unshockable? She's just been around. She's heard everything. She's seen everything. She's a practising um, doctor as well in a clinic for underprivileged kids in Western Sydney. She's been doing it for decades. So she's seen it all and heard it all. Um, but her North Star is communicating scientifically accurate truth to people without cringing or flinching away from something that might be gross or, you know, a little, a little squeamish. And she's just such a great ally to have in so many ways. Mm. I want to share one other thing about Melissa Kang. When I met her on a panel, it was for International Women's Day, and I, we were talking about how you break bias, and she, she said something that the whole, it stopped everything, it stopped everyone in their tracks, and she said, I don't think we can break bias, because her focus is on young female sexual health and, and, and kind of sexual identity as well. She said, I don't think we can break biases about women until we accept that women have sexual desire. And like everything starts from that, from knowing your body, from being able to talk about what you want and what you don't want. And it was a real game changer. I hadn't heard that said out loud. It's an amazing woman. Um, I want to talk about um, gender and collaborations. We seem to be sort of on that path a little bit as well, which is that there are kind of assumptions about how men and women work when they're together, about who leads and who follows. Or um, Have you come up against those in the work that you do? If you could sort of share some stories about that and how you've kind of challenged those biases. Well, I think one thing I learned just working in the media for as long as I have, is that not everybody's going to like you. And once you kind of really, really um, internalise that profoundly, that not only is not everybody going to like you, but some people are just actually going to loathe you actively, that's almost like a little, a little counterbalance to show you that you're doing the right thing. Um, so with that in mind and deeply internalised, you realise that actually we can live and operate within a silo of women, um, so the, the, the idea is that with our podcast and with our book, for every expert we need to talk to, there's usually a female that we can, that we can find and speak to. So we need to speak to a, a fantastic 
psychotherapist who does couples that, that have multiple partners, we know someone who can be that expert who's a woman. So we just kind of find ways to, to talk to people who may not have been unearthed as a media person. Um, and Claudine, you, you, that was sort of became the philosophy. Yeah, it, we absolutely. We just only wanted to hear women's voices on the podcast and we only wanted to um, speak to women. And there were a few reasons for that. It was obviously, um, I collaborate with men all the time and I live with a house full of men and grew up in a house full of men. So I know how to work and live with men. But there is something that shifts when you make it a, a, a space for women and gender diverse people. And I'm, I know there's other um, communities that choose to make it a space just for them. And I think it's because it changes that kind of, you know, having people from the dominant culture in that space. And so when we um, were starting the podcast, I knew that I had a sense that we wanted to do that. And I got challenged really early on. I remember the first listening party we had, we were told we were hearing a story about a woman talking about the fact that her vagina was, she had a condition which basically meant that her vagina was like a dimple. And it was like, you know, so she had to go through this excruciating process for, the, for her vagina to be lengthened so she could enjoy sex. And the first piece of feedback we got from a man in this listening party was, I wanna hear what her partner has to say. And that just for me was like, just made it really clear that I was going to shut that shit down and that this was going to be <laughs> like, because I was just like, well, maybe, but you go make a podcast about yeah. that where you guys talk about, you know yeah. what I mean? You've been doing it forever. So there was that element of, of wanting to create a safe space where women could be vulnerable and not have, you know, we see ourselves through the male gaze all the time, right? So, so let's just create some spaces where that's not dominant. The other thing that really drove my desire to have female experts is if you look at the stats around who we hear from in terms of um, in the health space, in the science space, any domain, overwhelmingly, it's men. So it was like, this is an opportunity to find talent that could be used. You know, we, this was an ABC po podcast, right? across the board. So you could unearth you know, new talent. So we talent. could unearth new talent, bring them in, have them be known, build their confidence, work with them, and then they would be able to be, you know, hopefully they go on late line or, you know, like end up on a, wherever. Late line doesn't exist anymore, but you know what I mean? 730 yeah, yeah, yeah. report or wherever yeah. it may be. And so that was the other part of it. And also we just found that when you started working with women, it, it led you to other places that you didn't know you were going to. So, you'd, you know, you'd do a story on painful sex and then you'd learn more about a particular, you know, you'd end up on a different place with a different story. Just to add to that, the nuts and bolts elements of making work, creative work with a team of women, I really felt like being people who are very invested in working effectively because we've got home responsibilities that often involve children, but often not like further study or, you know, just life. We never had to show up just for the sake of being at work. Um, we had to show up to get the job done. And then as soon as the job is done, there's no need for dick swinging around the office. You're talking really powerfully about the collaboration between you and also, as you say, Claudine, having a very clear vision of what it is you're making and who it's for and, and then having feedback about that. But I wonder if you could talk about, we mentioned them before, some of the hidden collaborators. So, you know, engineers, but um, also the people you've included in the podcast, the way that you wanted to, as you say, when you start to have a conversation with your team about an idea, the minute you put it out there, the idea starts to broaden out. People fill in other perspectives. How did you go about finding people to collaborate with you, with you on areas that you might not know you had blind spots? Yeah, that's an ongoing challenge with our work. And we revisited it. Like, the book was a great opportunity to really reflect on who we hadn't brought into the conversation enough first time around. And so there were a few people who... Uh, like, like there were a range of voices that we probably hadn't heard from enough in the podcast, so we deliberately sought those out. I think one of the things that we did, and it's something that I started doing when we were working on Ladies, and I do it... You know, I have a much better way of doing it now, is, like, who's missing... Like, we've got this table, we've got four people. Actually, who's missing from this? And obviously, you can't get everybody to the table all the time, but what are the ways that we can find, you know, the gender-diverse experience or, you know, a First Nations woman who's got something to, you know, and, and a First Nations expert who's going to talk to us about this particular experience or, 
you know, like, like, and just, we're, and, and also, like, continuing to look for those different voices and those different people and, and, you know, opening up and being willing to, not so much when the mic's on, but when the mic's off, so in your pre-interview or your follow-up, really hear what they've got to say more broadly about, you know, the topic and, and the podcast and the idea. So you can, and then you start to go, oh, actually, there's something in a completely different idea that we hadn't thought of before. We got um, in the back of the book, we got all the people that have worked on the podcast to just say a little bit about their experience of it. Um, and I really enjoyed, that's one of my favourite things about the book was to kind of go, can you just, you know, give us your first person account? One of them was Judy Rapley, who's been at the ABC, um, for, I think, for longer than I've been alive. No, I'm not even kidding. Because I was like, oh, isn't that cute? That, that old, little old Judy Rapley, she loves working on our groovy you know, vag forward podcast. Then in this blurb, I didn't even know this, but in 1975, she'd worked on a women's radio show called The Coming Out Show um, that was pioneering this stuff before I was even born. So there's people like her who are tech producers, there's commissioning editors, there's, I think there's one guy that wrote some music for the show. Um, We tried to get a woman, but it just didn't, didn't land and he did such a good job that we thought, well, it's just your music. (laughs) <laughs> but it's just been what we've found time and again is that there's definitely room in our industry to um, nurture and mentor talent within the tech side to bring them forward and uh, I mean women talent yeah I wanted to talk to you about the book um, like a lot of people when this fantastic book was released it was we were in heavy COVID and we were beyond the point of all the online conversations or in the first year and a half they were thrilling and then everyone was like no more online conversations so we didn't get to celebrate this book we didn't get to launch it properly we didn't get to talk about it in a room but I'd love to hear you both talk about that experience of taking something that's so intimate the podcast is so it's so one-to-one right and then you're turning it into a book what were the processes how how weird was it for you or how hard was it for you to keep that essence of what's so successful about the about the podcast and make it land on the page one of the things that I love about, about the podcast, ladies, we need to talk, is that, yeah, we can't encompass every single experience. And the way to get away from making a mess of that is to really be, be quite clear that it's one person's experience. So we hand the mic over to somebody who wants to talk about her really successful divorce experience or, you know, like her, her vagina that's unusual um, and that discovery process. So we're not saying this is what everyone's vaginas are like or this is what everyone's divorce is like, but um, they can just own that element of the story. So we managed to kind of transcribe that across to print form and just have, here's a voice, let her speak. This isn't Claudine saying, and then we spoke to, you know, she's just having her moment with the mic and it's quite glorious because it's impossible to fuck up as an author. <laughs> like you're just giving them the space. One of the things I loved most about writing the the book was um, we were able to go back. Like, so I went through all the emails that we'd ever had since the podcast um, to see how it had landed. Because I worked on the first season and then I went and worked on other things, um, I hadn't really had an opportunity to see whether the podcast had had the impact that I'd hoped that it would, which is that our audience would learn some things, that they'd feel less alone, that they'd feel empowered, that they'd step outside their comfort zone, that, you know, like, that it would change their, you know, change their lives. And there were so many amazing emails that that really spoke to what had happened. So being able to bring those emails into this book was a joy. And then go back, you know, because you need to get people's permission, go back and sort of correspond with these women to tell them we were writing a book. And nobody said... I don't want, you know what I mean? Some of these were emails that had been sent five years ago. Everyone said they were so delighted and so happy. So that was a joy. The other great thing about the book was the illustrations. And the little, you know, the little illustration of you and me standing in front of the open legs, about to walk into the vulva and vagina and have a good look. That was, that was pretty great. <laughs> was it very different to collaborate on a podcast than collaborating on a book? Oh my God. Yeah. Yumi said to me when I said, we spoke and she's like, so do you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And she's like, you're going to fucking hate it. (laughs) (laughs) And she was right. There were like, because you have to do the work. It it is a lot more solitary 
than working on a podcast, writing a book. And when you think about the fact that we finished this book, you know, I was three weeks into a lockdown. Um, so I was at home, and in fact, we'd been in quarantine for two weeks. So I was at home with my family. The only place I could get any space on my own was on my bed. So I was finishing this book sitting on my, you know what I mean? Just like the only place I could do it was on my bed. It was so lonely and so like, but you just had to do it. Like you just had to keep going. So um, that sort of surprised me just like how, how solitary the writing process was compared to the podcast process. Yeah. Yeah. There's always someone else in the room, I think, when you're making audio. Um, but one of the things that, that really sums up the experience of the book um, and the collaborative nature between not just Claudine and I, not just people like Cass who produced for four years, um, not just the listeners, was the way that it kind of came full circle. And we wrote about this in the intro. There was a story we did about this woman who couldn't work out why she couldn't manage her period. Um, she used tampons and she wanted to be a pro swimmer, but she was constantly having spills and leaks and was seeing countless doctors about it. And they were like, change your tampon more often. And she's kind of like, oh, but I am. Um, so she'd seen, and her mum was cool. Like her mum was like, you got to help my daughter and kept pursuing it, but they just found nothing. Fast forward 50 years, the woman's now 60. Um, and her friend was like, you got to go see uh, this gyno that I know. She's really good with vaginas. And the lady's like, uh, isn't that what gynos are meant to be? <laughs> So she, she went on this recommendation and the woman um, discovered that she has like two vaginal passages leading to two uteruses and a single ovary there like that. So one would bleed, the other one would have the tampon um, and no one picked it up. She'd had ultrasounds and stuff that should have revealed this, but no one did. Um, so she talked about that on our podcast. Listening to the podcast was a whole separate woman who was like, goosebumps. This is, she's describing my experience. So suddenly she's got a name for something and she can even, you know, email a producer and say, who's the gyno that I should go see, goes and gets checked out, realises that this is the thing that she's had undiagnosed for decades. So that is the sort of feedback that we managed to go full circle, looping back in that we probably couldn't have done just in podcast alone that we got to do with the print version. And the really awesome thing about that is that second email came in, like, as I was trying to write the introduction, I was like, oh, I, do this. I was out of ideas. It was just like, thank you. Brilliant. Um, we are going to come to your questions in a moment, and there are two mics down the front, so you can feel free to wander up. But I wanted to, it's the, it's the right moment to ask the question, do you think of the people who listen to the podcast and read the books as part of the collaboration? Yeah, definitely. Totally. Mm, and, you know, um, media organisations love, um, they love a couple of things. They love an, a listener event where you can go and do something with the listener. Um, but they also love what they call UGC, which I thought, is that, is that wrestling? Yeah, it does sound like wrestling. Yeah. It's user-generated content. So if you do a box pop or you get them to call up. So I recently did one, like a call out to say, have you experienced burnout? And I do a lot of that on my Instagram because I've got followers there that um, outnumber ABC's <laughs> followers. <laughs> so um, that is, a, that is a, a form of collaboration. But at one of these listener events at the Powerhouse in Brisbane, we, had, um, lot, we were doing a co-presentation -pre with Miff Warhurst and Zanro who have another podcast. Um, bang on. Bang on. And heaps of people had turned up to see Bang On and just a few dozen had turned up to see the ladies we need to talk element. But among those dozens were a group of young women who were probably 21. They all listened to the podcast and then they'd go out for cheap Vietnamese and talk about what they'd heard. And based on what they'd heard um, in one particular episode about birth control, they all went and got IUDs. So I just found that fascinating that the, the knock-on effect from hearing about what your suite of options are in terms of birth control can actually change the way that a woman manages her body in real life. Like that, to me, was pretty incredible. That was something that came back a lot when I went through those emails, was that, that giving women a... Because we're often gaslit, right, when we go and ask for help, you know, like we're told, oh, it's all in your head. It was a very common thing that came up, 
you know, comes up in interviews in the podcast. So a lot of women had, you know, by listening to the podcast and hearing that story over and over, knew that that was the thing and, and they were able to identify when it was happening with them. And they also learned, you know, how to go and ask for help, the questions to ask, how to push, how to be more assertive. So that, like, that's huge success, as you say. Like, if the podcast stops tomorrow, if, you know, like, there's never another book and, like, that's enormous. Like, that's real change. That's the kind of stuff that, that's what gets you up in the morning. Well, one bit of feedback that we also got that I'll never forget was somebody, we'd, we made an episode about abortion and what, what it kind of involves. So it wasn't like, yeah, go and get a political abortion, you know, and um, it was just like, this is what you do. Um, and, and it depends on for how far along in your pregnancy you are, but this, these are the options available to you. It was just very cut and dried. Um, and somebody contacted us and said, I needed an abortion. I actually couldn't find the information I was looking for. It was scary. Um, and your podcast really just laid it all out there for me. And that made me feel really, like, so happy and so, like, this is good work that we're doing. Mm, definitely. Um, I want to invite our audience, if you have any questions for Claudine or Yumi to come on up. Can Thank I share you. one more anecdote while people yeah. are getting to the mic? So just recently, maybe about a month ago, you shared with me a piece of feedback which delighted me. And you'll remember more of the detail than I do. But someone had emailed you to say she was now having the best sex of her life. And the reason she was having the best sex of her life is not because she had learnt to ask for what she wanted. It was because the man that she was having sex with had had a partner who had listened to the podcast. Or no, he'd listened to the po he'd listened to the podcast and had schooled himself up and was so anyway, that was bloody amazing. That's a win. That's the right kind of win you want. That's hard on a metric scale, I think, for commissioning people to yeah, 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 exactly. satisfy. We're gonna start with you, thank you. Um, you did an episode about um, unhealthy relationships with alcohol. Um, was that first season? I can't remember. A long yeah, time yeah. ago, yeah. Um, and I was just wondering um, about what you might have to say about the relationship of alcohol and collaboration. Because there's a lot of times that you sort of say, let's do this over a glass of wine. Let's crack open a bottle of champagne to celebrate something. You know, and just um, how that's so pervasive in collaborative environments. That's an excellent question because really when we first met, you just stopped drinking. Mm -hmm. And I... I'm not a huge drinker, but I do like to um, often do exactly that, which is, I'm really glad to ask that question. So for, for us, from the beginning, drinking wasn't really how we were collaborating, right? Food is huge. <laughs> Coffee. Coffee. And complaining. Complaining. A bit of exercise. Yeah. Um, so I think once you sort of, you know, take alcohol off the table, so to speak, as a, a form of collaboration. There's lots of other really great ways. But I, I think about it, so I don't know that you know this, but now when I'm doing those kind of relationship building things, I'm very mindful of the role that alcohol plays in them because I think it is often a go-to and I don't think that's great. Mm, I love that question. Thank you so much. It's really thoughtful and, and meaningful to me especially. When, when I knew that Claudine wanted to do an episode about women who drink too much... I, I really was, I was only in season one and I was still quite bruised from a number of awful experiences I'd had in my career, um, but also from coming off alcohol from years of addiction. So I had to weigh up, is this something that I am ready to talk about in this public way, um, in this particular forum, um, how much is it going to come back and burn me um, and how much is it going to help me? And again, just, you know, and I really was given the choice. No one was ever urging me to talk about it um, if I didn't want to. So just being able to, to choose to do that, um, it also gave me permission to go to an AA meeting because it was for research. So I'd never been to one, but I was like, no, I'm doing this for work. Uh, awkward. I feel really, like, scared. Um, the, the thing that it, it underlined again was being able to talk about it and fess up to this massive problem that I had never talked about before really helped me stay sober. So it's been six or seven years now and I haven't drunk since then. Hello. Um, I wanted to, uh, to say thank you for the mental load. Um, my husband listened to it and I think he hates you. Um, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. Uh, coming from corporate, listening to your collaboration, I'm jealous. Um, because you seem to have a female team that respect each other. 
Do you think that that is made collaboration easier? Because when you collaborate in a team with diversity and males in corporate, a female voice that comes across clear and strong is seen in a derogatory way. Do you think that is the success of this particular um, venture? And do you think maybe that's been the opposite to what we're meant to be for diversity? Mm. To answer your question, yes, you should quit your job. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that 10 times. I think it's me. (laughs) It's not you. It's not you. It's not you. Look, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, I think that it's it like collaborating. It is. I have collaborated and do collaborate with with men. I'm I'm pretty particular about um, the the tone that we try to set. But I'm in a fortunate position where I'm often able to set the tone and the culture and whatnot of a of a group, which is I realise a privilege. Mm, it's very di- like I don't know what the answer is because I can imagine if you're in co- corp- the corporate sector, you can't just shut those voices, shut everyone out. But but maybe there are ways to create spaces that that are, um, you know, women. You know what I mean? Like start small. Like are there opportunities to start collaborating where you you know where you choose a very small group of people and are really successful? But yeah, I really I, I wish I had an answer, but. And I wanted to thank but you. But we hear you and thank you but for I your question. I want to thank you for that question because we're, you know, this is a particular kind of room that the three of us work at the ABC where there's like an, sometimes an overemphasis on collaboration. It's like, can we do some work now? I just don't want to talk to everyone anymore. <laughs> I mean, I'm joking, but, you know, that you're right, though, that a huge part of the rest of the world and working world works the way you're describing. It's a corporate mode. It's a, it's a, it's a and I don't mean male, I mean masculine mode of operation, which is about having a leader and everybody else, like drunk hierarchy, right? Somebody's in charge and everybody else falls underneath. And what I felt like listening to the podcast and preparing for today was that maybe the way that we start to change culture is by doing things in smaller groups. And I know that we can overdo that, but maybe that's the way to do it is to start to make more little subgroups of people where there's more trust and they know who you are more and they know what you do more. And they bring that into the next meeting that you have where they back you up when you speak. I have got something actually, and it goes back to the mental load and the um, Eve Rodsky stuff. It's where you make the invisible visible. Because I think one of the problems when you collaborate, um, you know, with a a group in a a dominant culture, and I'm talking here about men, um, you're doing a lot of the unseen work, right? So, So think about how you can make the invisible work that you and other women in those spaces are doing visible. And... That, that at least is the first step to kind of, you know, evening out the collaboration. Because I think that, that, that there is a lot of work that happens in the corporate sector and in business in general where women are doing the work and then all the invisible work. Was that, was that great quote from the, the, first member of, the first member of Congress in America who was a gay man who said that when... And he was the first person who was a you know, minority. And he said, when, when all you've ever experienced is privilege, even the, the suggestion of equality feels like oppression. Um, I want to hear a question from Kate. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. Um, my question is, um, I was wondering how you met, because I find sometimes that when you meet, um, I think that friendships between women are so incredibly important, and sometimes falling into friendship is like falling into love. I can see that you both love each other. Will you share with us your story of falling into friendship? Oh, that's a lovely that's question. And it's true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think our boss, um, Kelly Reardon, was worried we were going to run off together. <laughs> She's like, are you guys going to elope? We're like, well, we're talking Maybe. about Europe. <laughs> a couple of weeks there. Um, following for Claudine was really... Um, no, it was really good. It was like, I, I, think, I think that when you know... That, that work is a space where love can exist, it's quite, it's quite wonderful, isn't it? Like, totally. And yeah. I think when you've got a family and a partner and, you know, your, your options for falling in love are kind of limited, so um, <laughs> without upsetting a lot of people. So, that was, so that's really great. Um, I met Yumi by sending her a text, right? So we had, I'd had this idea. There was a colleague that I had that's a good friend of Yumi, Scott Spark, and... I said, I think I want to. Um, I think I'm going to pitch this idea for the podcast, and I think Yumi would be great. Can you put us in contact with each other? And she got back to me 
sort of within 15 minutes. And then the next interaction we had, so I kind of thought she was pretty great then. The next interaction was where we lined up to have a phone call and I'd arrived in Sydney, caught in a downpour, sitting in ABC Ultimo there, in soaked to the bone, shivering in air conditioning. And so Yumi and I had this conversation about the idea of the podcast and what we were thinking about. And it's that kind of, it was like a first, you know, like, I guess if we were dating, you know what I mean? Like your first phone call. And then hung up and 10 minutes later, she said, I've just done the most stalkerish thing in my life. There's a bag of dry clothes downstairs in reception that I've left for you. Um, I hope you don't mind or something. Also, I have a feeling from the sound of your voice that you're about my size. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God. I was like, I don't think she sounds like she's my size. So that I'm was not, but it was just... And it's I think it was just something about that. It was like... Um, it was brave, it was loving, it was thoughtful, it was um, vulnerable, it was just, there were so many things and it did really set that tone. And then I think by the time then when we first met and sat down, we had already forged a bond and there was a real sense of, um, you know, I don't know, coming together and um, feeling that you'd found someone who was like a, bit, a little bit like home, which is where, you know, it is like falling in love. Can we take your question? Yes, I know please. it's vulnerable <laughs> yeah. standing up there and Hi. waiting. Hi. Um, I just wanted to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, it, and while we're talking about, you know, women collaborating with other women, it would be really great, but it's not always the case because sometimes some women who have, you know, had to fight their way to get to where they are feel like the limelight for women is finite in that given space. So... I guess I'd like to ask you, do you have any suggestions for how we can allay some of those fears of women like that we encounter? Really great question. Look, I work with women like that, like not, you know, there are women that I have to work with that are like that. And I've, I try to not give them the oxygen. Do you know what I mean? Like I try to focus on the culture that I want to create and look out for the people who, you know, Yumi talked about um, emerging talent and, you know, so I try to focus my energy on the women who are like Yumi, who kind of fill my cup and it's a great experience. And then the next generation who are coming through and when I'm feeling really defeated by the gatekeepers or the women who've kicked the ladder down, I, f I really focus on the women who are coming through, or you know what I mean, um, or other people, not just women, but you know what I mean, the people who are coming through, who we're not hearing from enough in, you know, public discourse or whatever, and that makes me braver and stronger. Um, Japan's one of the most populated and small countries in the world, or it used to be, it's dwindling now, but um, there's a culture of not seeing your neighbour because you're so crammed up against each other that you need to give each other privacy by choosing where your gaze goes. And I really feel like that box that I was talking about before, when, when I'm vibrating against somebody negative, um, I can put up that wall and not even see them. They, they cease to exist. But also this is the bit where I feel quite confident. I know that I'm doing good work here. So they can disrupt and, and criticise and spread toxins but it's not coming through and this bit is safe because this is where I put my heart and soul and, and nobody, can, nobody can fuck with that. The whole thing might come crashing down, but I can be confident that this part was well-maintained to the best of my ability. I want to ask one last question of you both. If people here are inspired, whether they're in corporate work or different kinds of work, to seek out people to collaborate with, what are some of the other attributes or contexts that might make it a winner? Enthusiasm. Oh, yeah. You both talked about a lot of generosity yeah. and, and humanness, you know. Yeah, she was cold, you, you brought her something. Yeah. I think, like, if, you want, if you've got a project that you can see a vision for and you've got enough enthusiasm to propel it all the way to the finish line, which is often ten times further away than you first think, then you should absolutely reach out to people. You don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to be a name. You don't have to have lots of... Um, rungs under you um, to, to be allowed to reach out to people if you've got that enthusiasm and belief in your project. Enthusiasm is such, it is such a 
quantity that is treasured and cherished by all, not just your collaborators, but your bosses, they can see that. The people who you might sell to, they can see it and smell it and they want it and that's what they'll pay money for. So if you've got a thing that is burning in you, just keep believing in it and keep just farming yourself out to people who will also come on board because they will see your vision and they will follow your vision to, to where it can go. I wanted to remind you all that you can meet Yumi and Claudine at Bay 23 Design Books. I want to thank you all for being part of this conversation this morning, but particularly please join me in thanking Yumi Steins and Claudine Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.